Let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to Revelation chapter 12. We almost finished this chapter last week, and uh, I, I wished we had, uh, because there's a lot more left for tonight. Uh, but uh, we're looking at the seven personages in the uh, end of the tribulation period, and, uh, and those personages are recorded in chapters 12 and 13, the first five in chapter 12, and the last two, the Antichrist, or the beast from the sea, and then the false prophet, the beast from the earth, in the chapter 13. So uh, let's just take our time as we go through it. I think it'll be important to um, maybe review a little bit from last week. Uh, this is another parenthetical passage that helps us understand the events that will take place in the tribulation. Remember we said in the chapter 11, verse 15, we heard the seventh trumpet sound, announcing the, the events of the second half of the tribulation. Those events will begin in chapter 16, the chronology of those events. And so we have this, uh, this holding period where uh, John, through the Holy Spirit, is revealing to us uh, what will uh, the personages, the people, that will be uh, main characters in the last half of the tribulation. So the seven personages, part two, is the title of the message tonight. Um, let's, let's just finish. Uh, let, me, let me review real quickly, and uh, it'll be the, for the first four that we looked at last week. A quick review. The woman represents Israel. We saw her in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. She's identified with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And if you remember back to Joseph's dream, and the 12 sons of Jacob are, are mentioned as those stars that were there. Uh, the moon and the sun being mom and dad bowing down to Joseph. So the beginnings of the nation of Israel. The woman gives birth to a child uh, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The woman is persecuted during the tribulation. In that persecution, a remnant, that is one-third of Israel, will be saved. We think of that salvation as spiritually. They will recognize Christ as their Messiah. They'll also be saved physically. They will survive the tribulation and go into the millennium, uh, the thousand-year rule of Christ. The great red dragon in verses 3 and 4 was the second personage. He represents Satan. He appears as Daniel's fourth beast in Daniel 7, 7 to 8, and, and verse 24 in Daniel 7. He has seven heads probably a reference to the revived Roman Empire, now in Satan's uh, control. Uh, the beast represents Satan's control over the world uh, empires during the Great Tribulation. Ten horns are a symbol of his power. The seven crowns on his seven heads are his attempt at being worthy of honor. His initial rebellion in heaven is mentioned, and one-third of the demons followed him, uh, he's been trying to overcome Christ ever since. Satan still has access into heaven where he accuses believers. And one day he'll be cast down forever. And that will be when Michael the archangel and his angels defeat him. The third personage, is, a personage was in verses 5 and 6. Represent, the male child representing Christ. Jesus is the one who will rule during the millennium with a rod of iron. And that phrase uh, in, in Revelation 2.27, it's found in Psalm 2.9, Revelation 19.15, uh, uh, an easy uh, identification that this is in, indeed Christ. Uh, then he's caught up to God and his throne. In verse 6, the woman who's, uh, th those Jews who refuse to take the mark of the beast will flee into the wilderness. God will protect her from the dragon 
And that's where they will be for 1,260 days or uh, three and a half years. The fourth personage was the archangel Michael, and he represents the angels, verses 7 through 17. He'll defeat Satan and his demons. They'll be cast out to the earth. Heaven will rejoice because the accusations against the brethren will have ceased. Uh, The devil will realize when he's thrown out onto the earth that his time is short, and his wrath is going to be unleashed against the nation of Israel. In verse 12, we read, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. We looked at three ways to overcome Satan's accusations. Uh, Number one, remind him that our sins have been forgiven by the blood of Christ. Number two, remind him that we have a testimony of salvation. And number three, confidently say that I would rather die than deny Christ. Those are the ways that he has overcome. We closed with an application that Spurgeon made on his sermon of chapter 12 and verse 12, and that title was Satan in a Rage. Spurgeon said, we too should recognize that our time is short. His time, when he recognized his time was short, he, he an all-out effort against Israel. When we recognize our time is short, we should have an all-out effort to spread the gospel, to spread abroad the love of Christ. Spurgeon said, quicken your diligence by the example of the prince of darkness. Shall we not learn wisdom from his subtlety and zeal, from his fury? Shall he discern the signs of the times and therefore bestir himself, and shall we sleep on? We ended last week's uh, service with uh, the closing hymn written by Charles Wesley, A Charge to Keep I Have. Let's pick up now in chapter 12 and verse 14, the fifth personage. The offspring of the woman represents the remnant of Israel. So chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away from the flood, or of the flood, or by. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. First of all, notice that God will, have, uh, will give swift deliverance for Israel when they flee Jerusalem, when the Antichrist turns in the middle of the, the 70 weeks of Daniel, in the middle of that uh, tribulation period, um, the, the three and a half years. So, It's interesting that God told uh, Israel in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4, when they fled the Egyptians, God said, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear ye on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Well, in the last half of this great tribulation, God will give protection again to those Israelites who are believers. He'll carry them on eagles' wings again this time to a place in the wilderness where Israel will be nourished, is the word that's used here. Uh, 
God will give them strength and nourishment. The word for nourish is the idea of pampering, of cherishing, of feeding, and of giving strength to. And that's exactly what the Lord's going to do during that last half of the tribulation time for Israel. God will give them safety and protection from the servant. So we've seen him providing deliverance on eagle's wings, giving nourishment while they're hidden in the wilderness, and then safety and protection from the serpent. He'll provide food and water and protect her from the face of the serpent. Serpent. Notice, notice how, how long that will be, a time, that's one year, and times would be two years, and half a time, the half year. So again, three and a half years. The serpent will try to flood her out from her hiding places. The earth will absorb the water or the flood that Satan sends from his mouth. Now, as the different interpreters have, have basically two different ideas on this. Number one, some think that this will be a literal attempt uh, to, um, to, to get the Israelites out of these caves with flooding the area with water. Others think it's a flood of propaganda against Israel from his mouth. When it happens, we'll know that it was a clear fulfillment of what Jesus said through the Apostle John in this verse. Satan will fight against the remnant who are Jewish believers in Christ. The remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God. So again, these are the ones who are believers and have a testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 8 tells us about this remnant. The remnant will be made up of one third of the nation of Israel. Let me read Zechariah 13:8. And it shall come to pass that in all the lands that the Lord two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And so that's where we get the, the one-third of Israel that will survive. Okay, let's move into chapter 13, and we'll look at verses 1 through 10. This is the sixth personage, the beast out of the sea, and it represents the future world dictator, the Antichrist. The, he's the key figure, one of the key figures in the tribulation, and so we'll spend the rest of our, our time tonight considering him, verses 1 through 10. First of all, notice how John describes the Antichrist. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. First of all, notice he rises up from the sea. Now remember, John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's standing on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. And some think that uh, he's, he's talking about this, this water. But the sea in scripture is often used for a sea of people, of humanity, of nations. John Walvoord believes this beast will be a Gentile, the Antichrist, as he comes from the sea. Let me read the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It reads, the fact that the beast comes out from the sea indicates that he is a Gentile, 
for the sea of humanity is involved as his source. When you compare Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15, he gives it as a cross-reference. It's where Jesus tells John, the water that you saw are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So again, the cross-section of humanity uh, that's, that's here in the world. Others think that the Antichrist will be Jewish. And they go back to Jan Daniel chapter 11 and verse 38 uh, that says the Antichrist will forsake the God of his fathers. And so some people think he is, he is a, a Jew who has forsaken the religion of his heritage of his fathers. Well, the kingdom of the Antichrist will be the revived Roman Empire. That is what it's uh, referred to as. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel describes four beasts, and the fourth is Antichrist's kingdom, the revived Roman Empire. You go through the first, four be the, the first beast, Nebuchadnezzar uh, is uh, of Babylon, appears with wings as eagles. The Medo-Persia Empire uh, appears as a bear with three ribs in his mouth, and those uh, kingdoms that are in his mouth would be Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. And then Greece appears like a leopard with wings and four heads. And the four heads represent the way uh, the four the divisions under Alexander the Great of, the, uh, of, of Greece. The fourth beast has bronze claws, iron teeth, ten horns, and uh, it speaks of the strength of the Roman Empire who crushed and defeated all of her foes. Some have tried to identify the beast from the sea as a person who was already uh, living as a historical figure, someone in the past who's died. But the context here is clearly talking about someone who will rule in the second half of the tribulation. So this is not something that already took place. It's something that's yet future. There are ten crowns on this beast, one on each of his horns, and on each head... The name of blasphemy, the Greek word blasphemia, is uh, a word that means evil speaking, railing, pretty much the same as what our English word for blasphemy is, vilification. The ten horns represent the united confederation of ten kings uh, or ten nations. And so in this revived Roman Empire, there will be ten nations that follow the Antichrist, and all of these ten nations will follow this beast. Antichrist appears as a leopard. Um, his feet are like a bear. His mouth like that of a lion. And you, when you think of the, each of these animals, you think of powerful uh, animals. The leopard has leg and shoulder muscles that can climb vertically 50 to 60 feet uh, the, the bear has his claws that uh, he, he's, it shows the strength of, of that animal. And then the lion, his jaws. And so the Antichrist has this great strength, and he appears like that uh, in the imagery. The dragon, Satan, will give Antichrist his power. He gives the beast, notice three things, power, his seat, and great authority. The power is, is the word dunamis, it's strength or force. The Antichrist is a force to be reckoned with. It can mean also, uh, his, his seat here, 
is the, the word thronos. Satan has set him on a throne. He's given him that authority to rule. And, and we see that in the next phrase, great authority. That word, exousia, has to do with his right, his privilege, his authority. So Satan is the one who's given the Antichrist power, position, and privilege. When we use the word Antichrist, John is the only scriptural uh, author that uses that term. Uh, anti can mean against, or it can mean in place of. So uh, against Christ would be used to describe the attitude or the spirit of the world that's against Christ. It can also mean in the place of Christ, and when it does, it describes a person who's putting himself as Christ before others. Those who put themselves up as Christ uh, have, have uh, marked our, our calendar of history, chronology of history. The Antichrist mentioned here is Again, the beast of the sea. John writes in 1 John 2, verse 18, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. So in John's day, as he was writing, there were many who claimed to be Antichrist. So there have been many satanic figures in world history. Dr. Custer calls this beast the most blatant and horrifying of them all. So he will be that future world leader. Notice how the heathen nations respond to him in verses 3 through 5. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. The healing of this deadly wound in verse 3 is for one of the seven heads or seven nations. Who is the the head that is killed and then revived. Some say it's a leading ruler, again, from history, who's revived back to life in the end times. Alford says uh, that he, he sees this as a revival of the now dead Roman Empire. Another idea is that he is a, the world ruler who receives a mortal wound but is healed by Satan. And this apparent miracle would create a following by those who worship the power of the evil one. Uh, Pentecost points out that Satan does not have the power to give life. So if this is uh, uh, an apparent death to life situation, a resurrection, it's only a facade. Uh, Satan does not have that power. So. You can choose which one you think it is, an evil ruler from history, uh, a revived, now dead Roman Empire, or this idea that uh, uh, either Antichrist or the beast are raised from the dead. Those who worship Satan, in verse 4, notice, also worship the beast. 
We called it before the unholy trinity, the Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. And when you worship one, you will worship the others. The Antichrist will be given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. So he'll be known by his boasting and again his blasphemy, same word that we saw before. The Antichrist will be in power 42 months. And if you add those up again, there you are at the three and a half years. In verse 6, we see his blasphemy against God. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Again, to blaspheme, to vilify, to defame, to speak evil of, same thing we saw in verse 1. Who does the beast, the Antichrist, blaspheme? God himself. His name. Names in scripture, all the names of, of God that are listed there speak something more of his character. And with all of the, the, the many names, we understand the character of God in a greater way. So he blasphemes his name, his character. He blasphemes his tabernacle, the place where he's chosen to dwell among men, the place where men come to God and God comes to man. He blasphemes his angels and his saints, those who dwell in heaven. In verse 7, we see his warfare against the saints. It was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindred and tongues and nations. His task, again, to make war against God's chosen, his saints, to try to defeat them. He'll have power over everyone, seen in the specific designation of family clans and language groups and tribes, the different ways that we can divide up humanity, his warfare, his worship by all the lost in verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That is, Christ, who was slain from the foundation of the world, that was his intent to provide redemption. Those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will worship the beast. We'll see it later on in the chapter about the mark of the beast. Seven times in the New Testament... It says that believers' names are written in the book of life. Is your name in that book? You say, how do I know? Trust Christ as your Savior. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15, it says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Make sure that your name is in that book. Jesus has provided salvation for you. Notice his effect on those who worship him in verses 9 and 10. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword or by the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Notice the last time that we saw if any man hear, let him hear was followed by what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Do you remember that in the first few chapters of Revelation? The phrase is not included here because the church is not here. So he's just simply saying, if you have ears, listen, pay attention. And then there's a, a proverb found in verse 10. It's a familiar proverb. 
Those who capture others will be captured. Those who fight by the sword will die by the sword. And here the proverb makes the point that those who are faithful saints, it's specifically talking about the tribulation saints here, those who are faithful saints will persevere. Those who are truly God's saints will persevere to the end. They won't take the mark of the beast. They'll make sure that they continue living for Christ. Well, we have 10 minutes left in our, in our time together. There are three key passages, I think, in Scripture. There may be others, but they, that tell us about this beast from the sea or the Antichrist. Again, these are not written by John, and so we won't have the name Antichrist, but we, we understand in the context that it is the Antichrist. Daniel 9 tells us when the Antichrist will rule. It's a verse that we've looked at before, but let's look at it again. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 are giving us the order of the events of the seven-year tribulation. The 69 sevens, the 69 weeks of Daniel, have already taken place. Verse 27 shows the Antichrist breaking his covenant with Israel in the middle of the seven years. So he will make a promise to Israel. He'll sit upon their throne. He'll let them have their sacrifices. And he will, uh, he will think, they will think that he is the Messiah. And then three and a half years into the tribulation... His true colors will be seen. We see that in Daniel 9, 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Okay, seven years. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. They're not going to be able to sacrifice to their, to their God anymore. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. We've talked before about the abomination of desolation. It's when the Antichrist exalts himself as God, he defiles the temple of God, and that's when the Jews will flee for safety on those wings of eagles. Let's turn over to Daniel chapter 11. In Daniel 11, verses 36 through 39, we read about what the Antichrist will be like. So here's a key passage that tells us from the Old Testament. Daniel 11.36 And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. Four things, uh, questions that we'll answer about the Antichrist from this passage. Number one, what does he do? Simply, he does his own will. 
He does what he wants to do. He exalts himself. He magnifies himself above all gods. He speaks evil against the true God. And it looks like he prospers, prospers for a while. What he does. What will he not do? He won't regard the God of his fathers. He won't have a desire for women. He won't regard any God. Third question, what does he honor? He honors the God of forces, strength, fortification, defense. Fourth question, how does he maintain power? It's by holding the treasures of Egypt. Daniel 11.8 and Daniel 11.43 on both sides of this text, we see that he is he has plundered the treasures of Egypt on his way through uh, conquering the land uh, toward Jerusalem. One last section from the New Testament that tells us about the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. You say, well, you told us this morning you're going to tell us who the Antichrist is. It must be in this chapter. Sorry, it's not. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is describing what will happen because someone has come in and persuaded the church that the end times have already come, that Christ's second coming had, had already taken place, and they had missed it. Well, he tells them in this section, we won't read the whole 12 verses, but he says, before the second coming, there'll be first a falling away, and the man of sin will be revealed. That's the Antichrist. He's called the man of sin. He's also called the son of perdition in this context. What two things does he do against God? In verse 4, he opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. Where will it take place? It will take place in the temple. Right now, the Holy Spirit is holding back sin. You see that in verse 7. But when he, the Holy Spirit, shall be taken away, out of the way... Verse 7, describing the rapture of the church. Then Satan's power will be shown by signs and lying wonders. You also see in this text that he'll be defeated with the spirit of Christ's mouth. Now we know that that's a capital S, I think, in that text. But speaking of, remember I said spirit and wind are the same word? Pneuma, the breath of Christ's mouth, I believe it's saying. And the brightness of his coming. That's how he'll be defeated. And God will intervene in those who follow the beast by sending a strong delusion. Well, that's a lot that we've covered tonight. Let me end this way. It's not our goal to try to identify the Antichrist. It's not our goal to identify who's going to be in that league, that confederation of ten nations that will make up the revived Roman Empire. We'd like to do that, because as you think about it, the Antichrist may be alive right now. And these ten nations might be forming that consolidation even now. But many have spe speculated in the past, and they've been wrong. We know that things are getting worse and worse, but they have been getting worse and worse all along. I used to think of it as, a, as a, a, a chart where things get better, things get worse, things get better, things get worse. 
But as I think of it now, it's better to describe it as a downward spiral. Things are always getting worse. There's some change, but it seems like it's all getting worse. So instead of trying to find answers from speculations of who the Antichrist is or who these nations are or how long we have, let's continue doing what God has told us to do in his word. You say, well, that's not that exciting. In fact, some of those passages of scripture we go through, they're hard to endure. The Bible talks about enduring sound doctrine, doesn't it? Let's continue learning our scriptures. Let's continue living the way God has told us to live in his word. If Jesus were coming back tonight, would that change anything in your life right now? Let's keep doing what God's told us to do in his word. Let's continue sharing the gospel for those who are lost, witnessing to our neighbors. Let's spend time and effort in knowing the true Christ and submitting our lives to him. And let's rest in the fact that God's in control. We can rest in his promises. We can rely on his strength. We have a wonderful God who's in control. Let's continue loving and serving him. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to remain faithful to you. I pray that you would help us as we, as we go through the, the text of Revelation to see what things will be coming to pass and give us a burden to, to be faithful to you as we wait for that day. We thank you for the simple passages of Scripture that everyone can understand, that we're sinners, that you sent your Son into the world to die for us, that you want us, after we come to faith, to, to continue living for you, to continue in your word, continue in prayer, continue in faithfulness of, of our attendance at church and of, of serving you. And so I pray that you would help us to do that and help us to keep our eyes on Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.